Good afternoon. Can you hear me all right? Is this, is this good? Yeah? Okay. So after lunch, I went back to um, my little apartment. We have some apartments just down the street. Very lovely place to um, stay while we're teaching. And after lunch, I was looking forward to opening, has big west windows, to opening the windows wide and enjoying the, the froggitos, the little frogs down there. I don't know if you've heard them, but they're, they're uh, peeping very springily <laughs> in a spring-like fashion. And um, just looking forward to kind of relaxing and thinking about the talk. But life doesn't always do what we want, does it? So as I uh, open the windows, well, what is actually happening is there's a clanking, uh, big machinery over there making clanking and clunking sounds, and there's a chainsaw there cutting down some trees. And um, probably those sounds are two out of my three least favorite sounds. <laughs> The third is the beeping trucks, which <laughs> we don't have yet, but they're, they're, they're not unlikely to show up where there's construction. There's uh, uh, beeping trucks, right? So I noticed um, aversion arising. There was this resistance to what was happening. I had an argument with reality. So I I noticed, right, there was this hardening that happened kind of in my heart, my body, my mind, my thoughts. I was like, no. But having practiced for a number of years, (laughs) I turned towards that with curiosity. And really the question was, do I want to suffer or is there an alternative here? And that's really the question that we're asking. You might recognize that my scenario is not so different than coming into the meditation hall sometimes. You're ready, right, for your nice, relaxing, peaceful sit. You're really going to get it this time. And, you know, the person next to you is coughing. So I relaxed and I softened. And I connected with the experience rather than pushing away, right? I connected with it. I I learned something new. Mindfulness is about learning. I learned something new. I learned that the sound itself was not unpleasant to me. What was unpleasant was its impact on my body, that there was this unpleasant kind of jolting feeling in my body, clank, clank. You know, my body would kind of, on a very subtle level, not... I wasn't you know, doing that, but um, and 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 I widened, I like widened the attention. It was like, oh, this is the soundscape right now. This is the way things are right now, and I was able to hold it with a with a calm and relaxed mind. And then at a certain point, I thought, you know what? I actually need a little more quiet while I work on the talk. And I close the windows. They're very tight windows, so I couldn't hear it that much. So there's this this accommodation to the way things are, right, which we've been talking about. And then there's wise discernment. What is actually needed in this moment that I do have some choice over? 
I couldn't very well go and turn off the machinery. That, that, I didn't have that kind of choice, but I could close the windows. So the instructions we've been giving you, some of this came up in the questions and answers, right? Those are the advanced instructions. Like, you can go home now. <laughs> You've got the instructions. <laughs> but the great thing about retreat is it gives us... Um, Full time, we can dedicate ourselves to this uh, inquiry. How do I, there's so many ways to say it, right? How do I suffer or how do I exile myself from the now, from the here, from the world around me? How do I heal that separation, that exile? How do I come back home? Home in that moment included clanking trucks, chainsaws. How can I be home, in this case, in a situation that was unpleasant to me? So yesterday, I talked about practice as being the deepest kind of homecoming complete belonging. This is what I'm talking about. This, this, it's really a moment-by-moment thing of how are we relating to life, back to what Tara said, right? How are we relating to life? Are we exiling ourselves? Are we separating ourselves? Are we contracting in any way and causing ourselves suffering? Or are we able to enter fully into life, fully into the now, the here, the reality of the present. And that's, that's the, the, the deepest belonging, and it's also um, the deepest freedom. It's an unconditional kind of freedom. Most of our search for happiness is, is, relies on conditions, Basically, get as many pleasant as you can and get rid of the unpleasant and then we'll be happy, right? What about when the trucks start clanking across the street? Are we not going to be happy then? So conditional happiness is conditional. It's limited. It has certainly has some success rate, which is why we like it, why we keep going back to it. But it's not the free heart. It's not the free mind. So usually we find ourselves in life bouncing from wanting to not wanting. We see that we exile ourselves through the armoring of the heart and the mind. Our dislikes, our wants, our arguments with reality. And this is what we heal with our meditation. We soften. We soften so that we can touch the world and the world can touch us. We can be touched by the world, by other human beings, by the fox and the chickadees and the snow crocuses and the chainsaws. One of my favorite 
pithy teachings that I um, contemplate a lot is a phrase by the Zen master Dogen, 12th, I think 12th, 13th century uh, Zen master, and he said, Awakening is intimacy with all things. Awakening is intimacy with all things. What does that mean? What is this intimacy? How do we cultivate it? I googled intimacy to see what it means. <laughs> and uh, there were a couple definitions. Uh, one was um, close familiarity. And the other was friendship. So we start with this close familiarity, which we've been encouraging, right, ever since the beginning last night, this close familiarity with ourselves. Who am I? What am I? What is this human life? And our meditation practice provides the, the, the container for that exploration, though it can be done at any moment in our lives. I wasn't meditating formally this afternoon. I was just moving through life, right? But the meditation practice and our formal periods give us um, like a concentrated lab for intimacy with being human. So we move towards our embodied experience of being human. We we come down. It's not waking up. We actually wake down. (laughs) We're coming into our full humanity, which includes uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, emotions, thoughts, all of it. And the second part of the definition is friendship. Intimacy is only possible when the heart is kind. When we notice, for example, that we're judging or criticizing our experience, can we actually get close to it? When I was judging the sound of the clanking machinery, and not, I was actually moving away from it, It was only when I softened that I could move closer to that experience and see what was really happening. And that the sound wasn't such a problem, really, but the impact was unpleasant on my body. So we practice um, what we call kind-hearted awareness, kind-hearted mindfulness. We're trying to develop a relationship with our own experience that is kind, open, and has a foundation of unconditional love. It takes time. (laughs) You can't command it, right? We're we're, we're very used to, to a lot of judgment and most of us, a certain kind of harshness towards ourselves when our experience doesn't quite measure up to some ideal that we have or that we're served up on the Internet. 
Intimacy takes time. But we slowly soften, soften into what is my experience right now? What is happening? Can I meet this? Can I hold this? Can I allow this? Can I let this arise and pass away? And as we do this, moment by moment, we do develop a kind of deep acceptance and love just through the very allowing of the experience. Allowing of the experience with mindfulness, with awareness, with openness, opening to it. So this intimacy means that we turn towards our experience as it is, not as we think it should be, not as we want it to be, not as we think a good meditator would be experiencing, but rather in reality, what is true right now? Hmm, what's true right now is that I'm hardening my heart against the chainsaw sound. I don't like it. That first step of turning towards what it is allows um, some, some space and some possibility for even playing around with, can we have a different response? As a contemplative artist, I'd never heard that phrase before. I like it. An artist plays with their medium, right? They might splash a little paint here and see what happens. <laughs> In some ways, um, our meditation practice is similar. It's, a, it's experimentation. We try this, we try that, we see what works, we see what doesn't work, we learn. I um, came across a word, let's see if I can find it. I definitely can't remember it if I can't find it. Kakorafiophobia. Do you know what that is? Kakorafiophobia. <laughs> I looked up how to pronounce it because <laughs> I wanted to get it right. It's the fear of failure. <laughs> I didn't want to fail at pronouncing kakorafiophobia. We're all a bit kakorafiophobic, <laughs> right? We, we're, we're so afraid we're going to get it wrong. You can't get it wrong because everything that happens in your practice is about learning. Everything that arises is, is your life teaching you how you suffer, and how you can be free. Norman Fisher says, meditation practice is mostly the practice of failure. You keep trying, right? And you keep trying the same thing over and over again, don't you? (laughs) And it keeps like, no, this isn't working. I'm suffering. Um, But we learn. We do learn. The inventor Thomas Edison said, 
I haven't failed. I've only found 10,000 ways that don't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what meditation practice is. That's why it takes such courage to do it. You have to find all the ways that you try to be happy that don't work. And then slowly but surely we learn what ways actually do work. What does help the heart-mind unbind itself. Able to be at peace in this wild world that doesn't obey our commands for the most part. It's very wild. Life is wild. That's why it's so hard to be present. Have you noticed it's hard to be present? I read somewhere that the most, human, most common human thought is, get me out of here. <laughs> is there anybody who hasn't had that thought today? <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> Life is so intense because it's, it's moving so fast. It's changing all the time. It doesn't obey our commands does its own thing. We so much wish we could control things. At least a little bit more. Right? Like that person coughing next to us. Oh, if we could just get him to be quiet. But that's not the kind of world we live in. So we're trying to learn to land in in the world we live in, which is a world of um, wild change. That's what the Buddha taught is kind of the underlying reality is it's a wild changing world and how do we make peace with that? How do we live happy in such a world? I only know of a couple of ways. Softening, and letting go. Because in this wild world, what we, what we, we spend, it's so, um, sometimes it's so obvious, and then it's also on such subtle levels. The only thing that changes in the meditation instructions is it gets more and more subtle. So we spend, you know, the world going, no, yes, no, yes, <laughs> give me no. <laughs> and um, that's how we, we choose to deal with change. It, it's uh, stressful. We're learn- we want to learn to hold life like that. So anywhere we notice that, <clears throat> can we soften and open, let go, relax into make space for all different ways that we can say it. Sometimes the answer is no, I can't. Can we be okay with no, I can't? You don't have to be better than you are, (laughs) quote unquote better than you are. You don't have to have a different experience than you Let's say you're sitting here and there's a pain and and you just you just you just hate it. Can we be okay hating it? Like what's it like to hate it? Can we meet that experience? 
sometimes I say, somebody's like, what do I do, you know, with this pain? I'm trying to accept it. One student, I remember saying, what do I do with this pain? I'm trying to accept it. I said, well, you really hate it, don't you? And she said, yeah. I said, well, then hate it. Hate it fully. Like, what's that like? There's never a right answer. There's always your experience. Where am I in my notes? <laughs> hmm. Anyway, through this whole process, we're healing um, our estrangement from life. We're cultivating deep belonging. We're recognizing our undeniable embeddedness and undeniable vulnerability in this world. Dogen, this, this, this one might not make a lot of sense, but I love this one too. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. There's no estrangement there, is there? Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. That's belonging. That's this. So mindfulness is a word that's become um, quite popular. And it's often just equated with paying attention. But in a, in a Buddhist context, uh, mindfulness uh, is more than that. It's more than paying attention. It has more depth and intelligence added into it. So mindfulness, it connects with the experience, knows it, and learns from it. So there's even a little bit of a, a wisdom element in, in mindfulness. So we receive life. We recover our senses. We connect. I mean, basically what's going on? What is life? It's the six senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling the body and the mind. So that's what we come back to as our home base, our embodied presence in this world. And these experiences are what teach us about how life is. Basically, the the closer we move to them, the more intimate we get with these experiences of our senses, the more we see the wild change. And then as we see how we relate to that wild change, we see how we suffer and how we can be free. Suzuki Roshi, the the, um, Japanese Zen master, said, or described mindfulness as soft readiness. Soft readiness. 
So there's this kind of openness, right? Openness. Flexibility. And softness. Allowing. So there's a a kind of alertness and a, a softness. We could say that mindfulness um, incorporates both. Alert, curious, interested, soft, ready, and allowing. Mindfulness is sometimes called uh, present time non-judgmental awareness. Present time non-judgmental awareness, so non-judgmental. It has a kind of meta quality to it, not judging, allowing, meta. It's said that... um, when mindfulness arises, a, a number of other mind states arise with it, and one of them is non-anger, which is metta, another way metta is said, non-anger. I love to uh, hear about uh, a famous botanist and inventor, George Washington Carver, born um, into slavery in 1864 and then as an adult became quite an herbalist and known for his genius for working with plants and healing. And one time uh, he was asked how he learned what he knew about herbs and healing and he said, all the flowers talk to me and so do hundreds of living things in the woods I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I love how he doesn't just say, I learn what I know by watching everything. He says, I learn how, what I know by watching and loving everything. And you can get the sense how that word loving, right, is a, moves him closer and into Intimacy with the different plants, and that's how he learns. Maybe we can do the same right here. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything and letting it teach us just as the plants taught him. So this learning, um, it's not an intellectual exercise. This is what really messes with us. So when we think of learning or investigating our experience, we think of thinking about it. So I'm going to sit here and think about what's happening to me. It's, it's very tempting. I'm sure uh, you've all had that experience. Um, For the purposes of meditation practice, that's a limited way to know. And it's not the kind of knowing that we're interested in. We're more interested in in learning from the moment-to-moment connection 
with our experience. So, for example, um, and we might use our thinking brain sometimes. It's like it's not like we never use it, but but back again to the clanking machinery. I was tracking my experience, and that's what was teaching me. That's what was um, pointing me. Right? It wasn't intellectual thinking about, oh, you know. Why do why am I well so the question why am I suffering? I mean it wasn't why. So the question more is how and what. So I wasn't there thinking why am I suffering? I was more like how am I suffering? So if you want a, a question, use that one. How am I suffering? How is it unfolding in in my own experience? What alternatives are there? So it's very visceral, it's very embodied. And it's curious, right? So we have so many ideas. Um, We have so many ideas about what's going on, but as we become intimate, we see it differently. So (laughs) I was talking with Greg at lunch. We like to talk about Dharma, so... We were talking about green beans and quinoa. And um, so I I said to Greg, I I like quinoa. And then I said, well, actually, I don't know if I like quinoa. I think I have this idea that quinoa is good for me, so therefore I like it. (laughs) Right? So that's a conceptual understanding of quinoa. But as I get close to quinoa and taste it moment by moment and see the impact and the response to it. That's what's really happening. right? So we live in our ideas a lot, but we're trying to move closer. So we have a pain in the body. Oh, that pain is horrible, and, you know, I'm going to need knee replacement surgery or whatever. You know, we, we create this whole idea. What is it like to move close to a pain in the knee? Oh, it's swirling, changing sensations, waxing and waning. That's a different story. That's closer to the truth of things. Oh, there's a bracing against it. It's unpleasant. Oh, can I soften for one or two seconds? Literally. That's a high enough bar for starters. But even for one or two seconds, that's a paradigm shift. That's a completely different way of relating to unpleasantness than what we're used to. And it offers the possibility of freedom, even when unpleasantness is existing, is around, is happening. Tara mentioned it briefly last night that that concentration mindfulness have two components, one that's more active and one that's more receptive. So the more active is um, aiming, 
aiming our attention. And the more receptive is called sustaining our attention. So aiming and sustaining. And so when we're working with an with a anchor, a home base, trying to kind of get here, <laughs> um, so we might aim our attention at the breath, right? And then we rest there. Or as Sayada Upandita says, we rub the experience. There's that intimacy, right? So we need both the aiming and the sustaining. As um, <laughs> we tend to uh, sometimes overdo the aiming part. So we tend to like keep trying to kind of connect, right? We try to connect, and then we forget to rest with what we're connecting with. It's an, this is a question of balanced effort. So I think of it sometimes as a difference between a, um, a woodpecker and a hermit thrush. So sometimes we meditate like woodpeckers. Or just like boom, boom, boom. We, we, there's a kind of um, <laughs> attacking each moment, trying to get each moment. Um, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, and it's more subtle, but it's just aiming, 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 right? And um, some of that is helpful, but some of it might give us a headache. It's amazing that woodpeckers don't get headaches, right? So we kind of whack at our meditation sometimes. Or, or sometimes we meditate a little bit like a blue jay. We get kind of bossy. If you've ever seen blue jays, they kind of come, you know, they kind of come barreling in and, and try to control the whole situation. So we get kind of bossy with ourselves. And, um, oh, you should be like this. You should be doing that. And um, try to make this heart, body, mind behave. There's an alternative. We could meditate more like the hermit thrush. Do you know the song of the hermit thrush? They, um, they hide in the woods. You don't usually see them. You hear them more. But they have this light, flute-like, um, ethereal song. And it's very sweet and kind of poignant and tender and touches the heart, and when we hear it, we feel blessed and we we relax. So maybe the wood thrush can point us towards a gentler kind of effort with our practice with mindfulness. The deepest concentration comes out of relaxation. Or, Or another way of saying it is like a drummer and a flute player. Sometimes we're like the drummer in our meditation practice. Can we add in the flute player? You really need both, right? If it's just the drummer, well, that's a little intense. But if it's just the flute player, they might kind of float away. So we have the drummer can give us kind of some structure, and the flute player can give us the relaxation and the, and the melody. So make sure that there's enough hermit thrush in your meditation, a a sense of relaxing into what's happening, that intimacy, that um, 
receiving. That's another way I sometimes describe it. Can we receive life through these sense doors, through our sense experience? It's vulnerable. That's why we're not sure the answer is yes. It might be a wood thrush, hermit thrush song, and it might be a a chainsaw. We're learning how we can um, expand the capacity of our hearts and minds to include all, all of it, the whole spectrum of life. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That's what we're practicing. And we'll fail, we'll fail again and again. And then these moments of um, grace that come out of just perseverance, just keeping going, whether it's easy or hard. You like it, you don't like it. It's like we have these understandings, insights into um, how we suffer and how we can be free. And they're not insights that come from, from churning the mind. They're insights that often, I'd say they come from deeper in the body. And it's more like a, oh, Oh, oh yeah, oh, okay. You can't command them. Sometimes they have to do with our personal stories and uh, our personality quirks and or maybe even a relationship we're struggling with and suddenly go, oh, that's what's happening, oh. But then they also have to do with the whole territory of this is how life is. This is how I struggle with life. This is how my heart unbinds, my mind unbinds. Insight into Nietzsche, Nata Dukkha, impermanence, suffering and dissatisfaction, and not self, all of which we will be touching over the days. found a quote about a couple hours ago that I liked, a book called uh, Relational Mindfulness by Deborah Eden Tull. Imagine if, as young people, our parents had set us down and said to us some version of this, welcome to this incredible and sobering journey called life. In this lifetime, you are going to experience more love and beauty than you could possibly imagine. And you will also experience more pain and suffering than you think you can bear. Given this reality, let us prepare you with as much awareness, wisdom, courage, resilience, and self-compassion as you are going to need for this journey. You will experience all of it, and so let us prepare you with the ability to see clearly and listen deeply 
as you navigate the journey called life. You have what it takes to meet whatever life brings you. So that's uh, our meditation practice. You have what it takes to meet whatever life brings you. We're cultivating the trust to believe that. Let's sit for a minute. What does the soup really taste like? (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.